got commissioned to go film a, a wildfire out in the hill country. And so he got on his phone and he called the local uh, airport to charter a plane that could carry him out above that land so he could get the necessary footage uh, for the uh, news cycle. He gets to the airport. He's been told on the phone that there is a twin-engine plane waiting for him when he arrives. He gets to the airport. He sees such a plane uh, waiting to go out to the tarmac, so he runs, jumps on board, starts unpacking his camera and getting ready uh, for the flight. And he, he turns to the pilot and said, let's go. And so the pilot takes off. And once in the air, the cameraman instructs the pilot to start making low passes over the valley so that he can get the, uh, the, the best shots of this wildfire and he can get close-up shots and he can uh, get the, the whole area covered in some fashion. And as he uh, uh, gives those instructions, the pilot looks back at him and says, why do you need that? Why do you need us to pass so low over the valley? Why do you need to get shots of the wildfire? And the cameraman said, well, it's because I'm a cameraman and I'm getting footage for the news tonight. And after a, a long silence, the pilot stammered, so what you're telling me is you're not my flight instructor? <laughs> no. and, and as one preacher has said, not knowing who someone is can lead to big problems, but it can lead to even bigger problems if you don't know who you are. See, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about identity. That's because the last book in the One and Done series that we're going to address is the letter of 3 John. And the letter of 3 John is very unique among these five texts that we've been studying uh, these past few weeks because it is a very personal text, and it's very much focused on individuals and their identity within the context of the church. See, 3 John is not written to a congregation. It's a companion to 2 John, but 2 John was written to the elect lady. A, a, a title, a, a phrase that Ben pointed out last week refers to the church in general. This letter, 3 John, is addressed to a particular person named Gaius. We'll talk more about him in just a moment. But it's written to an individual, and the, the issues addressed in 3 John are not big doctrinal issues, are not theological issues. They are personal issues happening within the context of the church. They really address some key personalities and some key individuals and some issues that are happening in the church around some of these, these individuals. One author has said that 3 John is the most non-theological letter in the New Testament. That's because it is the only New Testament book that does not mention Jesus or Christ by name, and it doesn't address any doctrinal issues. It's legitimately a letter dealing with an issue between involving individuals in the church penned by the Apostle John. And we've been in this series for a few weeks now, this one-and-done series, this series in which we're tackling these one-chapter books that so often get overlooked. And when we turn to 3 John, it's easy to overlook 3 John. It's easy to ignore this letter because it doesn't have the depth and the riches of theology that Romans has. It doesn't address key uh, issues within the church like 1 Corinthians does. 
it doesn't provide practical advice like James does. But it does help us understand that who we are in the context of the church really does matter. We need to know who we are and what role we're playing. Because in 3 John, three individuals are going to be identified by name. Two of them are going to be commended, and one of them is going to be criticized, if not condemned. And so we need to be cognizant of our part, the part we play in the kingdom of God, in the church, because we never want to be the one who's the problem. So we're going to break down our study tonight by looking at the three individuals who are named in the text. That's going to be our guide for tonight's study. And the whole goal of 3 John is to reinforce the commitment of one who is doing great work in the church, to draw attention to the problems created by another, and to commend a third who is going to join those two brothers in the church that they are, they are at. So we're going to start with the addressee of this letter. His name is Gaius, and you'll read about him in the, very, the first eight or so verses, ultimately. So let's turn to 3 John, and let's start reading verses 1 through 8 together. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on, your, on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. John begins this letter by referring to an individual named Gaius as his beloved. That's a title that he repeats three more times in the letter. A total of four times Gaius is going to be referred to as beloved. That's a term of endearment. That language indicates that there is familiarity and, and, and a deep affection between John and this individual. In fact, if you look at verse 4, it may just be that John converted Gaius because he refers to him as... as, as, as he refers to my children there, lumping Gaius among my children. That language is the same language used by Paul in regards to his relationship with Timothy, his own child in the faith. It may just be that Gaius is someone that John converted at some point in time, and so there is a deep affection for Gaius in particular. Now, there are many people in Scripture named Gaius. There's at least four other references to a Gaius in the text of the New Testament. One of them is mentioned in Acts chapter 19 and verse 29 as a traveling companion of Paul. And it's, he's probably the same guy who's mentioned in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4 and described there as Gaius from Derby, the town of Derby. Then if you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul speaks of a Gaius as one of the few people he himself baptized in Corinth. 
And he's probably the same Gaius Paul mentions in Romans chapter 16 and verse 23 as his host in Corinth. So in, in the book of Acts, we have reference to a Gaius who's associated with the town of Derby, And then in Corinthians, we have a Gaius who's associated with the town of Corinth. So we, we at least have two men named Gaius between those two books. It may be that the Gaius mentioned here in 3 John is a different Gaius altogether. We don't know for sure. We are uncertain if this particular individual overlaps with any in Paul's earlier works. But John is speaking to this Gaius. And though we may not be certain of his associations prior to John, or his, whether or not he, he was a, a, a companion of Paul's, we do know some things for certain about this individual. We know for, for certain that he had a fantastic reputation in the church. John indicates that he had received reports from the brothers that testified to the fact that Gaius was walking in the truth. That idea of walking in the truth permeates all of John's letters. And it seems to indicate here that Gaius had a lifestyle that adhered to the ethical standards associated with Christ, as well as a commitment to the gospel that rejected the false teachings that were starting to surface at that time. False teachings that John's second letter, which Ben addressed last week, false teachings that were creeping in at that time, heretical teachings that were even claiming that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. But Gaius didn't buy into any of that. Gaius lived a life that was consistent with the message that he first heard, possibly the message he first heard from John. Gaius lived a life that was consistent with the gospel. And not only did John know that, but people were coming from Gaius's congregation and reporting to John that Gaius is walking in the truth. You see, John didn't have to worry about what he would hear about Gaius. Have you ever known someone that whenever their name came up, it made you a little bit uncomfortable? Has ever, anyone ever come up, to you and say, come up to you and said, do you know so-and-so? And you're like, yeah. Are you related to so-and-so? Maybe. You ever been in that boat? John didn't have to feel that way about Gaius. When his name surfaced, John had confidence in him because he knew Gaius was walking into the truth, and every report that came back to him was that Gaius was walking in the truth. Now let me ask you this, is that the reputation you have? When your name comes up in somebody's conversation and somebody is asked, do you know Kyle? Are they going to say that I'm walking in the truth? Are they going to say that you're walking in the truth? Do you have such a sterling reputation that you don't even have to worry about it? Because that's the context of Gaius here. But that's not the only thing we know about him. It's not just his reputation. We also know for certain that he found his ministerial niche. He found where he could serve the Lord, where he could benefit the kingdom. Here's the thing. What we find out in 3 John is that Gaius took on the responsibility of ministering to ministers. In 3 John verse 5, 
John compliments Gaius for providing hospitality to traveling preachers. Now you have to remember, at this time, in this early stage of the church, you didn't have any graduate schools for people to go get educated at and thereby become uh, preachers by profession. You did have men who were gifted with the ability of communicating the gospel, and you had men who were willing to dedicate their lives to communicating the gospel. Men who are trained even at times by these apostles. You have the Timothys and the Tituses and so on. These companions of the, the original church leaders who are being equipped to continue the work. They don't have a degree from a Bible college or from a school of preaching. They don't have that nice resume that we get to send in to these elders to be looked at and considered for positions in this congregation. What they did have is opportunities to share the gospel and recommendations from other congregations. And so these itinerant preachers would be traveling around to the churches around the Roman Empire to share the gospel. Just like Paul and Silas and Barnabas did. And apparently, Gaius was the guy at his congregation who would welcome, in, welcome them into his home who would take care of them as they're traveling, who would see to their needs, who epitomized Christian hospitality. Gaius himself does not appear to be a teacher or a preacher. He doesn't receive instructions to appoint elders and deacons like Timothy did in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He's not called upon to preach the word in season and out of season as Timothy was in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's not told what to teach the rich or when to implement a ministry to widows like Timothy receives in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and 6. He's simply commended for and encouraged to continue his behind-the-scenes ministry of hospitality. And even though Gaius's ministry was behind the scenes, his contributions still qualified him to be recognized in verse 8 of 3 John as a fellow worker for the truth. Now think about that. Gaius isn't like Paul, out there uh, going into new territories to share the good news. He's not like Timothy, who's receiving assignments from someone like Paul to go and uh, help these congregations grow. Gaius is not one of these front-line people. He's a behind-the-scenes worker, but he found where he could serve the Lord to the best of his ability behind the scenes, and for that he is commended by John. Have you found your role in the kingdom? That niche where you can contribute? That place where you can give God your best and you can use your skills, your talents, your resources, your personality, and everything to glorify him and to help the kingdom grow? Have you found your role, your place? It could be up front, it can be behind the scenes, it doesn't matter. But everyone has a part they can play, and Gaius reminds us of that. You see, when we look at this individual named Gaius, to whom this letter was originally penned, we see he has an identity as a worker. He's held up here as a fellow worker because he's willing to do what he can do for the Lord, even if it's not the, the most uh, in-the-spotlight role or the most glorified role or the most well-known role. 
He's still going to do what he can do. And Gaius finds his identity in the kingdom of God as a worker because he found his niche to be the guy who's known for hospitality. What are you known for? That's what Gaius challenges us to consider. But Gaius is not the only individual identified here in the letter of 3 John. After, we're told, after John talks about Gaius, he transitions to another character in this letter, a guy named Diotrephes. Now let's go back to 3 John and let's read verse 9 and 10. John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Now there's a lot to unpack right here about this guy named Diotrephes. This guy is the exact opposite of Gaius. Gaius is identified as a beloved brother with a sterling reputation who had found his personal behind-the-scenes ministry in the kingdom of God. Diotrephes receives no terms of endearment from John. Diotrephes is not identified as someone beloved by John. There is no beautiful language associated with the naming of Diotrephes. Instead, Diotrephes is presented as an opponent of John. Did you notice in verse 9? It says that Diotrephes refuses to acknowledge our authority. Who's John talking about when he says our? We don't know who all that includes, but we know it includes John. Diotrephes refuses to acknowledge John the Apostle John's authority. Now think about that for a moment. This is a guy in the church named Diotrephes who refuses to accept the authority of the one guy, the one guy who sat beside Jesus at the Last Supper, who was in the garden when Jesus was arrested, who was there when Jesus was on trial, who was there when Jesus was crucified, and who saw the empty tomb with his own eyes. That's the guy Diotrephes won't accept the authority of. Now, I can understand if you don't want to accept my authority, what little authority I would ever have. But John? No one deserves to be listened to more than John, the apostle. And Diotrephes won't have anything to do with it. Not only that, Diotrephes has gone so far as to make slanderous accusations against John the Apostle. The New American Standard Version says it this way. It says that uh, Diotrephes was unjustly accusing us with malicious words. Can you believe this guy has this attitude towards John? Not only that, but Diotrephes was unwilling to welcome the brothers, we're told in verse 10. See, Gaius was practicing Christian hospitality. These itinerant preachers would come through town, and Gaius would put them up. Gaius would take care of them. Gaius would welcome them into his home. Not Diotrephes. 
He won't welcome anybody. And Diotrephes is going so far as to criticizing anybody in the church who would welcome those preachers who are coming through town. Oh, he's even going a step beyond that. He's not willing to let them in his house. He's criticizing those who are willing to let them in their house. And then if you do let one of these preachers come into your house, guess what? He's going to disfellowship you. Diotrephes has risen to some sort of position of leadership in which he is dictating who is a brother and who is not a brother. He alone has taken it upon himself to be the judge and jury regarding fellowship. And I've skipped over the most notorious aspect of Diotrephes' description here. It's the very first thing said about him in verse 9. I know it caught your attention. We're told that Diotrephes likes to put himself first. You know, there was an argument that arose between the apostles on a number of occasions. It was the argument about who was the greatest. Was Jesus ever pleased with that argument? Did, did Jesus ever appreciate that they were discussing that topic? Did Jesus ever chime in and say, all right, let me, let me weigh in. I'll tell you who is the greatest. Well, he did, but he spun it on its head. You know who the greatest is? The one who serves. The last shall be first. You know who the greatest is? The, the one who's a little child. Diotrephes wants to be first in all things. One commentator said it this way. He said, Diotrephes was motivated by pride. Instead of giving the preeminence to Jesus Christ, he claimed it for himself. He had the final say-so about everything in the church, and his decisions were determined by one thing. What will this do by Diotrephes? This is self-absorption to the maximum. Diotrephes has put himself in the position of being the sole leader of that congregation, apparently. Diotrephes cares only about Diotrephes. And unfortunately, Diotrephes is not the only Diotrephes that has ever existed. There have been individuals in the history of Christianity who have elevated themselves to such a superior position, they want to be first in everything. And John here is calling this guy out. And he's saying, hey, when, I, when I'm able to come visit you guys, I'm going to handle this. But Diotrephes is a problem. Diotrephes is divisive. Diotrephes is not unlike those Pharisees that Jesus had to encounter day in, day out during his ministry. Because Diotrephes' identity in this whole scenario is that of a dictator. And the church was never designed to have dictators. The church is under the headship of Christ, in Christ alone, not any human being. And Diotrephes decided that he needed to be king, that he needed to be in charge, that he needed to have control. 
And the question I wonder is how many Christians today take on the attitude of Diotrephes? And maybe not so much in a public manner, but in some sort of way, they try to get their way in everything. Maybe it's behind the scenes. Maybe it's passive-aggressive. Maybe it's through complaining. Maybe they've learned that if they just shout loud enough, they'll get their way. I mean, Leah's learned that already. Is your identity in the church that of someone who's always out to get their way instead of someone who's out to get the Lord's way? Because that's the identity that's condemned in this letter. That's the identity that no one who wears the name of Christ should ever wear. But diatrophies is not the last individual mentioned. The last individual gets mentioned in verse 11 and 12. But notice how verse 11 starts. It says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Now, I want to pause right there for just a second. This is the most practical statement of this whole letter. I love this verse. It's so simple, so clear, so concise. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. And it's so very interesting because this statement follows the criticism of Diotrephes. This statement appears immediately after John critically talks about Diotrephes, which means that Diotrephes is held up as the evil example. Do not imitate evil. Do not imitate Diotrephes. But imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. The verse continues. Then then notice verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know, know that our testimony is true. The verse immediately before that statement, do not imitate evil, but imitate good, has to do with Diotrephes. The verse immediately after that statement has to do with Demetrius, the third individual named here. Demetrius is set in contrast to Diotrephes. Demetrius is set in the text as if he's the one to imitate as the good exemplar. John's glowing introduction of Demetrius means that he's the one held up as the example to imitate. We don't know much about Demetrius. There, are, there is at least another, one other Demetrius mentioned in the Bible. He's a silversmith who opposed Paul, so there's no reason to believe that it's the same Demetrius. But we know that John thought very highly of this guy. Like Gaius, Demetrius had a good reputation in the church. We're told he had a good testimony from everyone. Just like those uh, individuals who had met Gaius and went back and told John, hey, Gaius is walking in the truth. We've got people who are going back and telling John, hey, Demetrius, he's the guy. He has a good reputation. But I find it so very fascinating that not only does Demetrius have a good reputation among everyone, but he has a good reputation from the truth. Did you notice that? Demetrius in verse 12, 
has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. Now, how do you or I get a good reputation from the truth? You know, throughout John's letters, the truth is typically associated with the gospel. How does the gospel, how does the Word of God give you and I a good reputation? I think what John's trying to say is, if you compare Demetrius to the gospel, if you compare Demetrius to what we know about Christ, if you compare Demetrius to what we've been taught, to what the Word of God says, he models it. He looks like it. He follows it. Shouldn't be that the goal of every Christian? Wait a minute, those words got backwards. Shouldn't all of us want to have a good reputation with truth itself? Shouldn't all of us want people to be able to open their Bibles, read it, and then look at us and go, yeah, he or she looks like that. Isn't that the ultimate goal? That's the identity of Demetrius here. Demetrius in 3 John, his identity is that of the exemplar, of the standard. Not that he's replacing Christ. It's just like when Paul would say, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. It's not that he's setting the, the bar, but that he is providing an example for them to imitate because he's imitating Christ. Now, how many of us are confident enough in our faith and the way we live it out that we would tell somebody else, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. Paul could say it, and I get the impression that John is holding up Demetrius as someone who could say it too. Shouldn't you and I be able to say that? If we're going to wear the name of Christ, shouldn't we be able to say, imitate me because I'm imitating him? And if we can't, are we really wearing the name of Christ? And what needs to change? You see, when I look at 3 John, I, three, I see these three individuals. Two in a positive light, one in a negative light. One who's behind the scenes, one who's trying to control the narrative, and one who's being held up as a quality leader. And it challenges me to consider my own identity and my own reputation when it comes to the kingdom of God. This evening, the, the shortest letter in the Bible, by word count, is 3 John. But it packs a punch when you think about these individuals who are identified in it and whether or not you and I could be identified in the same positive light as Gaius or Demetrius or whether or not we would be identified in the negative light like Diotrephes. And this morning, this evening... My challenge to you is to simply consider your identity. Is it one 
that brings glory to the Lord? Or is it one that brings glory to yourself? That's how you'll know whether you're a Gaius and Demetrius or a Diotrephes. That brings us to a close of this one and done series as we've looked at the books of Obadiah and Philemon and Jude and 2nd and 3rd John. It's been a challenging study for, for the ministers, I believe, because we're taking this one small book, a book that we don't usually reference, a book that doesn't get much attention, and examining it for a message that we can study together. It's a reminder to us that all of God's Word is powerful. All of God's Word is inspired, and all of God's Word can teach. And this evening, as we reflect on 3 John, hopefully it challenges us to think about our role in the church and what we're known for. And if you look at your identity and it's not one that's associated with Christ, then we want to invite you to do something about that tonight by putting him on in baptism. And if you look at your identity tonight and realize you haven't found your role in the church, or you find out and examine yourself and realize that you do more that causes division than unity. Or you look at yourself and realize you can't claim to be imitating Christ the way that you should. Then we invite you to make the changes that are necessary and to start that off by coming to the Lord, admitting your sin, and starting anew. If you have any need to respond to the invitation this evening, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.